BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Common Sense with Dr. Ben Carson. ESG, Environmental, Social, Governance. You've heard those initials a lot lately, but who really knows what it stands for? What does it mean? What change has been brought about? What exactly is it? We have an expert today who's going to help us to unpack all of that. But uh, I just want to welcome you all to another episode of Common Sense with Dr. Ben Carson. That's me, they tell me. And uh, we are going to be injecting a little common sense into this discussion today. You know, ESG, one of the biggest issues that you probably don't know about and probably should know about. And here today to help us unpack all of this is Justin Danoff. Justin is head of of corporate governance for Strive Asset Management and previously served as executive vice president of the National Center for Public Policy Research and director of the Center's Free Enterprise Project. So we'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who knows more about this subject than Justin today. And welcome, Justin, and thank you so much for being willing to join us today. Hey, it's my honor, Dr. Carson. It's a really, really a privilege to get to chat with you today. Well, thank you. Well, let's let's just go back to the basics. Uh, you know, ESG means you know different things to different people. But can you define what it generally is, and when do we start talking so much about it? Yeah, sure. So first of all, you know, the ESG it does stand for Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance. And there are three things that are, you know, interestingly put together, right? It's sort of like saying sock, car, banana. Like these things don't actually belong together, but they were lumped together. Like a lot of other three-letter acronyms, uh, they're meant to obfuscate rather than actually define. Uh, I was in a room maybe seven or eight months ago with thought leaders that are pushing back on the ESG initiative. And that was actually the first thing I asked. There was about 35 of us in a roundtable and I ask everyone for their own definition of ESG. I got 35 different answers, Dr. Carson. <laughs> that is a design of ESG. That's a func- feature, not a bug, by the way. Again, it's designed to obfuscate. But if I were to you know, give my definition of what ESG really is, it is whatever an activist group is trying to achieve through big business that they can't otherwise achieve in our culture. 
And so what do I mean by that? We have a political process. We have a legal process. We have state houses, local governments, and Capitol Hill, which are designed and were set up by our founders to answer political questions, right? Because who elects those folks? The American citizens. And so they are held to account by the citizenry. And when some of these activist organizations don't get what they want through the ballot box, through the political process, they're often trying to go through the back door of business to achieve those same ends. Mm. We can give some very concrete examples. It would be unconstitutional, let alone violate dozens of federal and state laws to mandate that corporate boards have affirmative action policies, right? Right. Well, that's okay, say the activists. We'll just go to the corporate proxy ballot and demand the same. And again, this is happening on issue after issue after issue, and they all fall under this banner of ESG. So that that's kind of how I look at it from a, you know a, a broader perspective. Well, that uh, that certainly is a, a very good perspective to look at it from. But what happened in this whole process to the concept of shareholder value? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. I, I think that you know what happened over time is the actual owner of capital got further and further and further away from the shareholder vote and the, you know, the true fiduciary nature. So what happened? We had these passive funds start. The right now, you know, Strive Asset Management, we're in the ETF business. Mm-hmm. In the passive world, there are three firms. They're BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard that control $20 trillion or thereabouts in assets under management. Dr. Carson, that's on par with the GDP of the United States of America. So this is a lot of power concentrated in few hands. And what they do is they use their voice and their vote to engage with the businesses in their underlying holdings to advance very often ESG causes. And what do I say by the true owner of capital has further and further away from that action? Well, let's just take a pension holder in a state like Texas, for example, or a state like Florida. Well, they put their money with the pension fund manager, right? Who then allocates that money upstream to a BlackRock, State Street, or Vanguard, who then pushes ESG initiatives that many times that true capital owner, that, you know, firefighter, nurse, police officer, teacher in Texas or Florida or elsewhere actually disagrees with. And so there's been this divorce from the owner of capital all the way up to the asset manager acting in ways that they don't have approval from that capital owner to act, by the way. Absolutely. They've, they've, They've actually found a way to totally empower themselves without the permission of anybody. And uh, they they do what they want to do, and they they've usurped the power of the people essentially. Yeah, I mean, look, I I think it's very fair to say that you know, 250 years after we threw off the shackles of the British, we're fighting a different kind of monarchy here in the United States of America. Again, if you think about just the CEOs of you know BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, that's three people controlling 20 trillion dollars of other people's money and using it in ways that they largely disagree with. You know, they're under the S of ESG, 
There are shareholder proposals all over the place that try and divide us by race in this country. Right. A lot of them fall under the banner of racial equity audits. Well, what are these? These are extreme bean counting measures. They're very involved. They're very politicized where you have to look at your supply chain all the way up to your board and everywhere in between and report on, you know, DE&I initiatives, report mm -hmm. on your, you know, your EEO numbers, EEO1, EEO2 and, and the like. And who are the folks that are running these racial equity audits? Well, none other than Eric Holder out of his seat at Covington, mm -hmm. Loretta Lynch at her law firm. And so again, when ESG advocates attempt to obfuscate, as I said, this is part of what ESG is all about. Well, they say that this isn't politicized. This is just long-term interest. This is business interest. Point to that example to show if it's not politicized, why are Loretta Lynch and Eric Holder the ones running these racial equity audits? Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, proponents like uh, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic uh, Forum has argued that stakeholder capitalism is the best response to today's social and environmental issues. Is he right? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the dictates from the Davos crowd are, are ridiculous and they get more ridiculous as they get more exposed and more sunlight, uh, sunshine, you know, put upon them. But, you know, look, I, I think that in 2019, it went a little unnoticed, but the Business Roundtable, which is a collection of CEOs of some of the largest companies in the United States of America, they redefined what they said the purpose of a corporation was. This mm -hmm. happened in the summer of 2019. They wrote that basically shareholder primacy was dead and that they were now going to be responsible to all stakeholders. And then they had a long list of commas and shareholders were put dead last on the list. Mm -hmm. And what is responsibility to everybody? It's responsibility to nobody. So what were the CEOs really saying when the Business Roundtable signed that statement? They were saying that we want to pick the constituents that we support on any given day that just so happen, you know, if we're thinking about Jamie Dimon um, at right. J.P. Morgan or Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America, very often the constituent they pick of the day just happens to follow their political persuasion as they, again, work to politicize business decision making. At Strive Asset Management, one of the reasons we were founded, one of our goals is to take politics out of the corporate boardroom and put it back where it belongs on the ballot box, not the corporate proxy ballot. And thank you all for doing that. We, we really need some advocates, you know, for the people and for common sense. And uh, not to take over everything, but let's talk a little bit about the, the and ESG. Are the elevated gas and energy prices that we're dealing with today related to the E and ESG? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that when it comes to advocacy under pro-ESG, the E is by far the biggest. Right. The, the, the percentage of shareholder resolutions, the percentage of corporate engagements that companies such as BlackRock and State Street, they are heavily weighted towards the E of ESG. And what do most of the proposals and the proponents look like under under the E banner? They all point to the Paris Climate Accord or the International Energy Agency 
a net zero target and the target keeps changing, right? Because that's what the, the advocates are looking for. And so they started with 2050. Now some ask for 2045 net zero, you know, 2040. It, it, it's a moving of the goalpost game. And yeah. when you change the nature of the percentage of mix of energy, you really do present a very big risk. And let's take a, you know, let, let's look at some of these arbitrary standards. First of all, when it comes to international accords that purport to predict the climate in the future, right. when is the first, last, or only time any of them were proven right? <laughs> so far, since they've all been wrong, I'm having a tough time buying into that the next model is going to be correct. That's the first thing to point out. But the other thing to point out is, how interesting it is that BlackRock would support things like some net zero shareholder proposals, a scope three emission reduction that they did in 2021 at Chevron, when what is the nature of passive investing, of ETFs? It's saying we don't know enough to pick stocks one-on-one, -on -one, so we're going to put a basket of stocks together and sell them to you that way. So they know enough to know they don't know how to you know, pick right. stocks, but they know what the future looks like for the climate and also for the regulatory agencies. And somehow they can predict both of those things on an axis. Right. That's pretty impressive if I believed any of it. Right. Well, you know, the, the, the whole concept of environmental uh, justice is kind of strange because you can basically make it anything you want it to be. And you can use it to control anything that you want to control. Because as you accurately said, none of it ever turns out to be correct anyway. So you can make declarations and then you can make people adhere to your declarations. And it is really kind of silly, quite frankly. Yeah. And, and if you think about it, too, again, if you're going to change the energy mix, what are you what are you also doing to the developed world? You're hampering it, right? You're saying yeah. you can't join with the rest of us in flourishing. I'm proud to say that I'm a large consumer of CO2. And frankly, I want more people around the world to be able to say the same thing because that will mean their quality of life, uh, their food supply will increase, their standards of living will increase. Because if you really followed the Davos crowd to the letter of what they say, by the way, not what they do, because right. you know the, the hypocritical nature of them can't be right. understated. I mean, there's, there, there's, there's never a bigger concentration of private planes anywhere in the world than when they get together in Davos. Um, but they're, again, they're relegating the developed world to stay exactly where they are. Right. And I just think as, you know, frankly, as children of God, we, that's shameful. Well, you know, I'm an environmentalist. I, I definitely believe that we have a responsibility for the environment and to take care of it. But we need to do it in a logical way. You know, we look at our fossil fuels. We have advanced enormously in our ability to extract and utilize fossil fuels to the point where we have the, the cleanest air and the cleanest water uh, since things like that have been measured in this country. And yet we have a government that says, no, let's push back on that stuff and let's encourage some of the countries that don't have such clean measures for extracting that fuel and let's buy their fuel. And, and it just absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. It's craziness. But yeah. uh, when the environment stops changing, that's when we're all dead. 
Well, that's right. I mean, who, who has the cleanest fuel in the world as you're getting at? We do. We should, we should be the ones, you know, if we're going to export it, you know, export anything, it should be our technology to help other countries produce, you know, fuel and natural gas in the ways that we do. And what has that production of natural gas done in the United States of America? Well, it has caused us to reduce our carbon footprint more than any other nation in the world in recent years. And so it's interesting because at the end of the day, do the environmentalists really care about CO2 reduction? It's hard to see that, right? It's hard to see that when they are attacking the very thing, natural gas, here in the United States of America that has caused us to reduce our carbon footprint by so much. So you have to really question their motivation. I think it's more about power than it is about energy. Be back in just one minute with our fascinating guests to talk a little bit more. We're going to talk about the S and ESG when we come back in just one minute. Stay with us. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we're back with Common Sense. Our fascinating guest is going to talk a little bit about the S and ESG. Now, we just talked about the E, the social, the diversity and inclusion, all of these things that uh, you've heard so much about lately. What are the pros and cons of diversity and inclusion when we're talking about corporate governance? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that true diversity is something that's not talked about nearly enough. And so when it comes to the S of ESG, if you think about board diversity, I have filed hundreds of shareholder resolutions over the years. And for many years, some of the social activists filed resolutions seeking affirmative action for boards of directors, you know, gender mix and makeup of of boards of directors. And a lot of companies went ahead and agreed to adopt those policies, Amazon, Facebook, the like, to the point where, you know, Jesse Jackson was clamoring for these at lots of shareholder meetings, for example. And a lot of folks ask me, like, Justin, why are shareholder proposals so important? Well, they tend to actually move the cultural needle. And so, you know, five and six years ago, again, it was Jesse Jackson, groups like the SEIU, who were pushing for affirmative action for boards of directors. Well, fast forward a couple of years, and that's when NASDAQ put forth a rule that was rubber stamped by the SEC that will end up going through the courts, whereby they are going to actually delist your company from the NASDAQ if you don't have a diverse enough board in their eyes. And again, they're talking about race and gender. And Goldman Sachs, made their announcement that they would no longer finance a company's IPO, that's their initial public offering, unless they had a diverse enough board in Goldman Sachs's eyes. And so it's very interesting that, you know, on issue after issue, shareholder proposals start with activists such as Jesse Jackson and then move to the mainstream with the NASDAQ and Goldman Sachs. 
And that happens quite regularly. But what I found pretty fascinating is I follow a lot of resolutions because, you know, social conscious is good and diversity is good on corporate boards. Mm. Uh, I, I think you would agree with that. But when you're a leader of a group, what is a major concern? Groupthink at the top. And so I filed true diversity resolutions asking for companies to consider different perspectives, different viewpoints. And in this day and age, as business is getting more and more political, I ask them to consider if they have any ideological problems, if they're all ideologically in lockstep and if they needed to look at a better balance there. And a lot of companies resisted that very thought. But I think society writ large would benefit if we looked at diversity in a true way rather than just the outward appearance of an individual. Well, part of the issue is that people have not, or a lot of the people have not come to the realization that our diversity and inclusion has improved dramatically over the last few years without somebody mandating a specific number here or a number there. There was a time when we talked about quotas as a bad thing. Now we're sort of micromanaging the quota system with these kinds of requirements. And what do those kinds of requirements do to the whole concept of merit? It kills it. Um, and, and, and it's soul crushing. And I think that, you know, when you talk about United Airlines setting a quota for, you know, black and brown pilots, you know, this is this is a very real thing. Microsoft announced a plan um, that they were going to have a certain quota system for, I think, VP level or above, something like that, that under the Trump administration, the Department of Labor was actually looking into. And of course, under the Biden administration, they stopped looking into it. Because as a government contractor, that's frankly illegal. And so I think that, A, it crushes the idea of merit. But think about what it says about affirmative action in college. Right. right? Affirmative action in college was supposed to be about equality of, increasing equality of opportunity. And now, when you're seeing it pushed down from the top in the business world, what are they saying? Well, maybe equality of opportunity was a good idea, but now we just want equality of outcome. And of course, you know, the E being switching of the DE&I, that is switching to equity. Well, again, this is just a term that the activists use to achieve whatever it is they're looking for without very much of a definition. And it's frankly, you know, just a frightening victimhood game that is being played um, and played very successfully, frankly, in society. But it's a it's a cancer in society. And it's really hitting the business community very, very hard at this point in time. Well, when you look at uh, the incredible benefits of a meritocracy, you look at this country and how it rose from nothing to the pinnacle of the world in record time, because we, in fact, wanted to have whoever was the best person to do something. Now, there's no question that there was a time when we suppressed a certain part of the population so that they didn't get the kind of training that was necessary to become the best. But we're in the process of remedying that and have remedied that to a substantial degree now. And I don't think there are a whole lot of people who walk around and and just look at the person's color and say, that person's not going to be good, this person's going to be good. We don't do a whole lot of that. There's still some few holdouts, but... Neanderthals, but there are not a whole lot of them anymore. And 
you know, we need to take that into account, I think, in the way that we do things if we want to create a harmonious society. If we don't want to have a harmonious society, then the thing that we do is we say, you're the favorite group, and uh, we don't care about that group anymore, and we're going to suppress this group so that you... I mean, how in the world does that lead to peace and tranquility and fairness? Because it's always going to be, now it's my turn, and now it's your turn, and now it's my turn, rather than now it's our time, our time to work together. So, But, you know, ESG's been around for a few years. Are we better off? <laughs> Have you seen any evidence that we're better off as a result of that? Well, again, think about, you know, you asked to pull on the S of ESG a little bit. Now, I want to pull on, you know, a, a little bit more. When you talk, when you look at companies like Disney um, that got very involved in the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida, which, by the way, never said gay. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what are they doing? They're saying that their morality is what should be forefront and across, you know, their and who do they impugn that to then? Well, their employee base, their customer base. And if you pull the employee base, if you pull the customer base, this is not what they want at all. Clearly. And so I look at it this way. If you look, you know, Bank of America debanks their gun clients, right? They, they cancel some of their energy clients that in the traditional fossil fuel space. You know, Mark Benioff, CEO of Salesforce, they cancel some gun clients. They, they cancel clients they don't agree with. I would put it this way. If you look to Disney or Bank of America or BlackRock for your moral compass, <laughs> your moral compass is broken. You're in trouble. <laughs> and that's not what society needs. <laughs> like we, we do not need these you know, barons to be the morality police for the rest of us. We're all, we're all children of God, and, and our, this is where our morals should lie. Well, politicians and, and governmental agencies have actually tried to use corporations to do what they can't legally do themselves. That really seems to be what's going on here. And when you stop and you think about the reasons that this country came into being, it was so that people could live the lives that they wanted to live, that they wouldn't have all kind of mandates and people with their foot in their throat telling them what they could and could not do, how they could spend their money, whether they could have any money. I mean... The whole thing is just spiraling into something that I think our founders worked very hard to make sure that it didn't. And I don't think it's too late to change it, quite frankly. But we'll come back and talk a little bit more about that. We need to take another quick break. We'll be right back with you with uh, Justin Denoff, a fantastic purveyor of truth. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And we're 
are back with Common Sense. Uh, we have Justin Denoff with us today, uh, talking about ESG and its effect on our society today. You know, uh, interestingly enough, I think we've we were all surprised to some degree and disappointed to learn that big tech has been working with the government to suppress the speech and the opinions of people with whom they disagree. How dangerous is that? Oh, very, very dangerous. I mean, you, you can think about the future, think about what the CCP does, right? They, mm -hmm. they technically can run any business they want because the businesses are responsive to the CCP. This is CCP light. Um, and if we get to the point where it's CCP equivalent, we're in real trouble here, Dr. Carson, yeah. because you know, you're exactly right. What we've learned from the Twitter files uh, now that Elon Musk has taken over and, you know, laid bare everything that was going on in the in the previous years, the FBI had a very heavy hand in suppressing issues such as uh, related to COVID, for sure. example, relating to political speech that they disagreed with. You know, Facebook, same thing. YouTube, same thing. And so the fact that they are acting as a de facto arm of the government when they're acting at the government's request. Uh, and so I think that a couple of things need to happen. First, lawsuits need to start, a, you know, abounding. Not a lawsuit here. There are many, many lawsuits. Because, again, it's, it's hard to say that you're not taking a government action when it's speech and you're acting on behalf of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So I just think that defense yeah. is like is now completely out the window, uh, especially at the social media companies. And wouldn't there be a good basis for some lawsuits uh, to these corporations because they're supposed to be managing the assets that people give to them in order to increase shareholder value, not in order to achieve some social goal. So they've sort of broken the contract with the people. Is there potential liability there? Oh, 100%. I think that, you know, the the business judgment rule has been used as a cudgel way too much to, you know, suppress shareholder derivative lawsuits, for example. But that doesn't mean folks shouldn't keep trying. I think that when you look at everything that's happening under ESG, I do think it's rate limiting for shareholders. I do think that, you know, there's a lot of alpha that could be unlocked at many companies if ESG dictates and mandates would go away. Uh, I think especially in this environment where it's all out in the open still, uh, right? I, I, you know, before it goes behind, you know, a, a, a closed door somewhere, I think that shareholders absolutely uh, need to step up here and have a really role to play. Because look, boards of directors and, you know, see managers, they have a duty under the fiduciary law. They have a duty of care, a duty of loyalty. And it's very clear to me in many instances that duty has been breached. Yeah. Well, when it comes to the environment, you know, how do some of these companies justify their investments in China, who obviously cares nothing about the environment? and is one of the biggest polluters in the world. How do they justify that? Have you heard a good justification? Oh, of course not. Um, you know, the, the, they, they attempt to say, well, 
we're working with China so that they can get up to speed with, you know, where we are. But they're, you know, they're not there yet, but that's OK. Uh, it, it's just the, the hypocritical nature, especially of a company like BlackRock's and, and their CEO, Larry Fink, who moralizes here in the United States of America, who is probably the lar- single largest proponent of ESG while doing business in China, which, by the way, Strive Asset Management has pledged we will never do business in China. Okay, for him to moralize to American companies while saying nothing of, you know, not just the E, the environmental issues in China, but the S, you know, the the enslavement and, you know, rape of the Uyghur Muslims population that goes on in the Zhejiang province. I mean, this is a company, BlackRock, that claims to care about social issues. Um, What of that? Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, you know, lawmakers in Utah, South Carolina, Indiana, and Virginia have introduced legislation to restrict the use of ESG factors in selecting investments in pensions and other state retirement plans. What do you think about those kinds of moves? I think it's great, and it's beyond the you know the state level. We've got it. We've got an issue at the federal level right now. Uh, that, that that's pretty scary as well that maybe not a lot of folks are paying attention to. So AI applaud those states because, you know, as the state pension, you are responsible. You have the fiduciary responsibility to the pension holders. And so if you are investing for ESG purposes, you have a sole fiduciary responsibility that you are breaking if you even introduce mixed motivations. And so at the federal level, under President Trump, and the great leadership of folks like Eugene Scalia and Alex Acosta, the Department of Labor passed a rule that said ERISA pension fund plans, which, by the way, covers about 150 plus a million Americans. Right. So this is a pretty big deal that fund managers in ERISA plans had to invest solely for pecuniary fiduciary purposes. They could not introduce mixed motivations right. that are you know, inherent when it comes to ESG type investing. The Biden administration put forth a rule in November mm-hmm. that would allow ESG back into every single ERISA plan. Exactly. That mixed motivation and ESG would be allowed again, affecting 152 million Americans, about approximately $12 trillion in retirement money that should go to Americans. And it's crazy to me, Dr. Carson, that we've gotten to a point where this is politicized. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about the S of ESG. You know what a really good social good is in society? It's retiring with dignity. Exactly. And when you mess with someone's retirement plan, you take away some of their dignity. And this should not be a political issue. I, You know, I like to say a liberal middle school teacher in San Francisco that teaches things that I might abhor, still wants to retire with dignity. So, you know, just as much as, you know, some MAGA-loving Republican sheriff in Texas, like both of them should be able to retire with dignity. So the fact that the Biden administration is trying to politicize the retirement and take away folks' dignity, I, I think that that's a shame. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's hope there. There's bipartisan legislation in the Senate that would halt this in its tracks. And additionally, 25 states have sued the Biden administration to try and stop it. 
So, you know, let, let's pray for success of one or two of those avenues because this DOL is out of control. Yeah, it's very encouraging to see that we have some of the governors who basically are starting to stand up for the people and they're taking some some punches for it. But in, uh, in Texas, they implemented a ban on municipalities doing business with financial firms that shun fossil fuels and the gun industry. And I, and I guess this is the reason that we have 50 states. Each one is, is a laboratory. You can see which ones work the best and uh, which are the states that everybody seems to be flooding to and which are the <laughs> states that everybody seems to be leaving. Uh, I, think th- I think there's something there. And then in uh, August of last year, DeSantis approved the resolution that bars the state of Florida pension fund from considering ESG factors in making investment decisions. And there are a number of other states who are enacting similar legislation. So what do you think Congress can do in a situation where we have divided power in the Senate and the House? Do you, do you think there's any hope unless we have control of both houses and the presidency? Well, I, I think that there is hope. Um, again, this piece of legislation to stop the Department of Labor rule, for example, only needs a majority vote in the Senate. It doesn't need to pass a 60 vote threshold. And so I, I think that there's a viable path forward there. I do think that, again, lawsuits need to be a really big part of how we can crimp ESG. And I, I think that there's a lot of different legal theories that are out there right now. There's an antitrust theory that the attorney general of the state of Arizona has thrown out when it comes to, you know, the way the big the big three passive asset managers specifically are involved in ESG. And I think that, again, there's fiduciary claims here, because if you are an asset allocator, that is, again, like, say, the pension fund manager in a state that takes the money from your pensioners and then you allocate it to an ESG pro ESG firm such as BlackRock or State Street you might end up having liability because you're the one who has the fiduciary responsibility to the pension holder. And so I think, you know, some lawsuits in in that arena and and registered investment advisors that do the same, that simply, you know, take the dollars from you and put them with a pro ESG firm. I think that there's, you know, some very interesting legal theories that are are being talked about right now that need to advance their way to court to, to have a real effect on on hampering what's going on under the banner of ESG. Well, we really appreciate the organizations like Strive and what they're doing to help push logic and common sense. And we're going to be back in just one minute with a quick close uh, from our fascinating guest. We're going to ask him, what can you, the average citizen, do? Even though you're worried about ESG, You're also worried about lots of things. And you're a responsible person and you're a good person. What can you do, if anything? And we'll be right back with the answer to that. Common Sense. 
We've had a fascinating discussion today about ESG. I think everybody now has a much clearer understanding of it. But I'm sure the, the question is lingering in your mind, what can you as a private citizen do, if anything? Or are we just passive and we just sit back and, and hope for the best? And uh, I'd like to ask our guest, Justin Danoff, what can the average citizen do who's really concerned about, you know, social justice, who's concerned about the environment, but who also is going to be retiring someday and would like to be able to do so in dignity? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And there's actually a lot that everyday Americans can do in this fight. First is vote. And I'm not talking about political elections, although those are very important in the ESG debate. I'm talking about the corporate proxy ballot. Every, largely in the spring, but every year, there are tens of thousands of votes that take place that many everyday Americans have a right to take advantage of that they don't. And this happens at annual shareholder meetings of publicly traded companies. That's at true. some companies, the retail, slap, meaning individual investors, vote at like less than the rate they do for municipal elections. Like in the teens, in the tw- you know, 20, 30 percent is high. And so you have a franchise that you're not using. And a lot of ESG issues are being debated and decided on that corporate proxy ballot. So you can vote for you know, board members. You can vote for management proposals and shareholder proposals. It has a lot of effect. But the evidence shows Americans aren't showing up to voice their opinion there, which, by the way, amplifies the voices of institutional shareholders such as BlackRock, State Street and Vanguard, because they do vote. And right. then their vote has an outsized influence. So that's that's the first thing you can do. Mm-hmm. The second thing you can do is, if, you know, if you have money in the capital markets, come to Strive.com. We have five questions that you can ask your financial advisor. Run through that list. It talks about, you know, which votes were made with my money. Because if you have a financial advisor, act, you know, make, making votes on your behalf, you need to make yourself aware of those and let them know your what your values stand for. Because again, a lot of the propositions being debated on these ballots, they represent values of someone else, not value, right? And and so I I think those are two very simple steps that everyday Americans can take. And look, if you're not an investor and what you see happening at a company that you engage with as a customer, well, guess what? There's investor relations lines for investors. There's customer relations line for customers. Mm -hmm. You know, call, talk. You know, if you're if, if you think that, you know, an issue that's happening at a bank that you're you know, you have a banking relationship with, go sit down and talk with the manager. If it's a retail store um, that, that you have an issue with that's pushing an ESG agenda that you disagree with, go have a talk with the manager of your, your local store. I think that you'll find those discussions enlightening uh, yeah. because when you engage and get involved, you can have a lot of impact. Those are words of great wisdom. And, you know, I remember as. Secretary of HUD, when actual people sat down with me and talked with me, it had a much bigger impact than a bunch of papers and things <laughs> that people brought in. You would be amazed at how much influence you have. And, uh, you know, your representatives, they like to hear from you too. And when they know that you're behind them, it gives them a lot more courage than if they think that they're kind of out there by themselves. So, There's a lot that we as individuals can do. And the last thing we need to do is sit back and and just let things be as they are. 
because you are the one who makes the difference in the environment. The person who has the most to do with what happens to our country is you, no one else. And I want to thank our, our fascinating guests, uh, Justin Danoff, the Strive Organization for being patriots, for helping people to be able to interpret what's going on and make logical, common sense decisions in their lives. Thank you so much, sir, for being with us today. Thank you, Dr. Carson. And I'll be right back with my prescription for the week. Come right back in one minute. you enjoyed that uh, discussion with Justin Danoff about ESG and how it is impacting each of our lives. You know, I am very much concerned about our environment. I've always been concerned about it. You know, God put this in our hands and told us to take care of it, and we need to do that. But there's a difference to being concerned about the environment and using that as a cudgel to beat people into submission. We've made enormous progress with the way that we do mining and the way that we extract uh, natural gas and oil. There's no reason that we can't use those things effectively as we move toward green renewable energy. The two things don't have to be enemies. They can work together to get us to where we need to be. As far as our social goals are concerned, we need to be concerned about our Constitution. I think it was divinely inspired by God to give us real freedom, the ability to work together with each other, to strengthen and hold each other up, to create a country that was unique and that actually had morals and standards that knew the difference between right and wrong, that didn't just do those things that accumulated wealth for an individual, but also did those things that accumulated goodwill for the community in which that individual lived. That's what America used to be. That's what America can be again. And now for your prescription, you know, we're in mid-February. Think about all of those New Year's resolutions that you made. Are you staying with them or have you fallen off the wagon? I dare say some of us probably have fallen off the wagon, but you know, that's no reason not to get right back on the wagon and keep going. Successful people are those who learn from their failures and move forward. So just because you fell off the wagon doesn't mean you can't get back on and continue the cruise. So make that your resolution for this week. And remember, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, 
get them. Make sure you don't miss any of the episodes. Rate us, review us, tell your friends and neighbors and your family about us. And let's spread common sense all over the place. Help people to understand that we, the American people, are not each other's enemies. And we can have an incredible society if we learn how to work together. And until next week, remember those cornerstone principles, faith, liberty, community, and life. See you next week.